Father, you know the weight of this text better than any of us ever could, for you wrote it through the hand of Moses. And Father, I pray as we look at it now in Genesis 14, that, Lord, that you would give me clarity in my speaking about this wonderful text, that you would give the people listening endurance in their thinking. And we pray that you would come in the power of your spirit, that you would work to let us see the, the beauty of Christ, even in Genesis 14. If you don't work, Lord, it won't happen. And so, yes, we walk by faith. I talk by faith right now. People listen in faith right now, expecting you to work. And that's my prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn in your copy of God's Holy and Perfect Word to Genesis chapter 14. One of the reasons people often misinterpret the Bible or come to wrong conclusions in the Bible when they're reading is because, and this might sound strange, people try to get immediately practical when they're reading the Bible. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is people pick up the Bible and they read it and the first question that they often ask is, how does this passage apply to me? Now, that's a good question to ask. It's just not the question to ask first. When we pick up our scriptures and we read the Bible and try to see how we fit into the passage right off the bat, then we're often led astray because for many passages in the Bible, the primary point is to teach us something about God, not primarily about ourselves. Old Testament narratives can be especially challenging in this regard. Someone can read the, the story of David and Goliath, per se, and they may immediately think, well, I need to be brave like David. Someone can read about Elijah hearing this still, small voice and think, I don't know what's going on, but I need to listen for this still, small voice. And we get immediately practical but when we read passages like this, looking for ourselves first, it often leads us to miss the overall point. There may be principles, there certainly are principles in the Bible about courage and how God communicates. But we need to do the hard work first of asking things like, what did this passage mean to the original readers? What is this passage telling me about God? What is this teaching me about humans? What is this telling me about God's plan through Jesus Christ? And only by asking these questions and answering them accurately first will we then be able to see how the passage applies to our modern lives. So why do I start here, this hermeneutical lesson? Well, because there will be some texts, especially Old Testament narratives perhaps, that you will begin reading and you will think, I have no idea what's going on, right? Maybe you have had that experience in your Bible reading. I have no idea what's going on, but I know that this applies to me somehow, so I'm going to take this principle and I'm just, I'm just going to apply it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be brave like David or hear the still small voice like Elijah. And, uh, you know, Gideon asked for a sign from God, so I guess I'm needing to ask for a sign from God. And the danger in that type of approach is it's, it, it, it lacks a carefulness in handling God's word and seeing how God's word was written for one big purpose. It, 
causes us to misapply principles. Getting immediately practical in a text is so easy. It's why so many people read their Bibles like this. Just look for yourself. Think about your life. It's all about you. It's why tons of preachers craft entire sermon series around felt needs of people because the thought is if we, if we don't get to them and if we don't get to them quickly, then they won't stick around. And brothers and sisters, I would want you to know, God would want you to know that there's far more joy in life when it's not immediately about ourselves. He wants you to experience the joy of a life that is about him. And there are tons and tons of stories in the Bible where the focus isn't about me and what I need to do, but more so the focus is on who God is and what he has done and then what that means for us. And that type of reading in the scriptures is hard. I mean, it's easy just to pluck principles out, right? It's hard reading the scriptures with the bigger picture in mind. You say, well, I wish I knew what that looked like. I mean, just on my Monday morning reading of the scriptures, I wish I could come to a text and understand, like, what is the purpose of this passage? What does it look like to take an Old Testament narrative that I don't have a clue what's going on and see God's purpose in it? Well, I give you Genesis 14 as an example, a case study, perhaps. When I first read Genesis 14 this week, I thought, I don't have a clue what I'm going to say on Sunday. <laughs> so, like, don't be discouraged when you come to texts in the Bible and you think, I'm lost. Like, in those times, pray for the Spirit's help, read the passage over and over and over, and then read it again over and over and over. Luther called this beating his head against the Scriptures. And then use some good resources and so, here's what I hope for you. If you hang with me in this sermon, there may be times where you think, I don't have a clue what's going on. I'm going to try to help you in that. But if you hang with me, in the words of one of my favorite preachers, John Piper, this sermon may not feel immediately practical, but I pray by the end it will be eternally helpful. Okay? So, Genesis 14, we're going to walk through it together and see what the Lord has for us. Starting in verse 1. Here come some more names. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Keterlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zoyamim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketelamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketelamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtoroth, Carnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Imam in Shaveh Carithium, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpath, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezazon Tamar. 
Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bala, that is Zoar, went out and joined, the battle, joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketelamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living, in the oak, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them, and pursued them to Habah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Ketelamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek came, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your, hand, your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. One of the benefits of preaching expositorily verse by verse through scripture is it doesn't allow me to dodge any chapters. And so we have Genesis 14 before us and it's what the Lord has for us. So may we listen intently. When it comes to watching movies, what is your favorite genre? For some of you, you love the dramas, right? The stories of successes and failures, we've seen plenty of them already in Genesis, just all around good plots. For some of you, you really like the sci-fi, right? Maybe this was Genesis 6 where the sons of God were coming to marry with the daughters of men and you like the weird stuff, maybe that's you. For some of you, you love the good suspense movies, right? This is, this is Noah and the Flood. This is the end of the world type stuff, zombie apocalypse type stuff. You love to be on the edge of your seat. Others of you are all about the romance, the hallmark. You just love seeing Abram and Sarai and can't wait for them to have children and can't wait for Isaac to meet Rebecca and live happily ever after. I hope, none, I hope none of you likes the soap operas, but if that is your thing, just wait till we get to Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. 
Some of you like the documentaries and you probably love the genealogy text of Genesis. Others of you like me love the action, the bombs, the guns, the swords, the explosives, the wars, like give me more of that. I mean, I could be in the mood for any of those other genres, but I'm always in the mood for a good action movie. Even if it's so predictable, I'll watch it to the end. And we think about Abram's life so far, it's been pretty calm. He's a farmer, a manager of livestock, he's a traveler, nothing too edgy. I mean, we've seen some drama, some suspense in Egypt, some romance with Sarai. But today, we get to see action Abram. Okay, I don't know if you've seen Abram in this light, but you'll see him today. In fact, in this narrative today, you could describe Abram as a warrior hero. I mean, this is a man's man's text. This is the fight scene. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, which is one of my favorite movies, this is one of the epic battle scenes. And if you were with me when I was reading it, you may be thinking, what's going on here? And so I want to summarize. If, if I were to summarize Genesis 14 in one statement, I would do it like this. We see an undeserving man being rescued by an unexpected hero. An undeserving man being rescued by an unexpected hero. So now that I have you intrigued, I hope, let me explain what's going on in this bizarre chapter. Before we can think about what does this mean for us, we have to think about what in the world's going on. So remember where we left off last time, we had Abram and Lot, they separated, they, they went their own ways. Abram is now living in the west of the promised land. Lot is now in the east near the wicked and compromised cities of like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's, he's put his tent right beside the cities. Now, the first seven verses of Genesis 14 is going to set the stage for the big battle scene. Okay, it's going to describe who the various players are in this narrative. And it gets confusing, and so I'm just going to break it down like this. This battle that's about to happen is about to take place between four kings of Mesopotamia versus five kings of Canaan. That's the most simple way that I could put it. Four kings in Mesopotamia, uh, the, the northwest, or northeast, excuse me, four kings of the northeast are going to come against five king friends of Canaan. Verse 1 of chapter 14 tells us who the first four kings are. Amraphel, Arioch, Ketelemeir, and Tidal. So each of these four kings have their own regions in Mesopotamia, but they're in an alliance together. Verse 2 tells us who they're fighting against, the five kings in Canaan. So you have Bera of Sodom, Bersha of Gomorrah, Shinab of Adma, Shemeber of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. It doesn't give us his name, but it's Zoar. Likewise, each of these five kings down in Canaan, they all have their own little regions, but they're in alliance together. So you have four kings of Mesopotamia up here in the northeast, and you have five kings down in Canaan here, and they're going to collide. They're going to go against each other. And verse 3 of verse four, chapter 14 tells us where the, val where the war is going to be fought. It's, it's in the Valley of Siddim, which is right beside the Dead Sea. If you know your biblical geography, right near the bottom south portion of the Dead Sea. So we have the four kings of Mesopotamia, southeast, I mean northeast, versus the five kings of Canaan. 
Now, verse four is gonna give us some background detail. Before the war starts, you need to know, verse four, 12 years they had served Kettle Mayor, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So what's that all about? What it's talking about is there these five kings in Canaan. For 12 years, they had served under the four more powerful kings of Mesopotamia, which was led by Kettle Mayor. So for 12 years, they were in submission to them. But in the 13th year, these five Canaanite kings says, you know what? We want to be on our own. Let's forget about the Mesopotamian kings and Kettle Mayor. Let's rebel and be independent. And so that's what you have. In the 13th year, they rebel, decide to go independent. And you have to think, what do you think the four more powerful kings of Mesopotamia think about that? I mean, if you know world history, kings do not like to be rebelled against, right? Well, of course, they're not going to like it that these five Canaanite kings are, are rebelling. And so what are they going to do? The four kings of the northeast say, we'll go and set them straight. If they want to be independent, we'll travel down to Canaan and we'll just see if they can stand on their own two feet. And so that's what they do. It starts in verse five. It says, in the 14th year of Kettle Mayor, one of the kings of the northeast Mesopotamian region, in the 14th year, he and the other kings with him came and defeated the Raphaim at Ashtaroth Karnaim. Now, what is that? We haven't heard that name yet. Here's what's happening. I'm trying to, to be with my hands accurate in showing geography here. So if Canaan is down here, the five rebellious kings are down here, and the four kings in the northeast are up here, in order for them to get to the five rebellious kings, they have to travel through other smaller kingdoms. Okay, and so starting in verse five, it's gonna tell us several kingdoms that they're going to along the way to set these five rebellious kings in their place. And so verse five tells us, the first, as they're traveling down, the first place they come to, they defeat the Raphaim and Asteroth Carnaim. And then you, you can see, as you continue in verse five and, and six going on, you can see all the other places. So if Canaan's here, they beat the Raphaim, and then they beat the Zuzum and Ham, and then they beat the Imam. And if, if you were looking on the map here as there, all these names are being stated, you would see that all these rebellious kings are here and these four other kings are coming and they're defeating king by king and they get to the five rebellious kings and you think they're about to set them straight, but yet the text shows that they're gonna actually pass by. So in verse six, it says they come to the Horites. The Horites are actually south of the five rebellious kings. And then it says they go all the way down to El Paran, which is almost in Egypt. And so that's a lot of geography, but here's what's happening. These four kings are coming to set the five kings straight, yet they pass by them. We think they're going to stop to battle them, but they don't. They just go right by them. Why would they do that? Well, we're going to soon find out. Look at verse 7. Then they turned back. So, they have passed by the rebellious kings. Now they're coming back. This time, they're going to go on the other side. This is a good old-fashioned, we're going to circle them, okay? So get the picture. These kings are wiping out every kingdom around Canaan, 
right? Why would they do that? Because when they get ready to attack the five rebellious kings, they don't want any help to be around them. There will be no one to call for help. As Sodom and Gomorrah are being attacked, they can't call the Raphaim. They can't call the the Horites below them because the four Mesopotamian kings have wiped out everyone so that when they attack them, no one will be there to rescue them. And that's exactly what we see. They defeat, in verse seven, they defeat the Amalekites, gone. The Amorites, gone. And what we see is they end up then right beside the five rebellious kings. And verse eight and nine tells us of the war. The five kings go out to meet the four powerful Mesopotamian kings and they're in battle, the Valley of Siddam. Now verse 10 gives an interesting war detail. Look at verse 10. Now the Valley of Siddam was full of bitumen pits and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. And what's that all about? I mean, you may think, I don't know what a bitumen pit is, but I don't want to fall into one. These bitumen pits were huge natural tar pits. It was something that was naturally produced by the Dead Sea. Just huge round tar pits. It's like falling into a, 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 a bed of quicksand, except it's not quicksand, it's just tar And so these people, as they're running away from these kings, they're falling into these pits and are literally drowning to death in tar. It's an awful way to die. And I think this is a detail that's given here to to just give us more of a picture of the graphic nature of what's happening in this scene. These four kings are wiping out everyone and even when people are trying to escape, they're falling to death in tar pits. Verse 11 tells us how the, how the war finished. So the enemy, the four kings of Mesopotamia, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions and went their way. This picture is swift execution style battles. The five Canaanite kings who wanted to be independent stood no chance. The four kings of Mesopotamia have come, conquered, divided, and they have taken away everything and now they're headed back home back to Mesopotamia probably thinking we'll teach them to rebel against us again now look at verse 12 this is where it gets interesting they also took Lot remember him the son of Abram's brother who was where dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Remember Lot, who chose the better land for himself, who chose to get as close to the prosperous and wicked, who chose, as we see now, not to just live in a tent outside the city, but to take up residence in a house in the wicked city. This is Lot, who chose the prosperity of the world, and now he's going down with the destruction of the world. Get this, he has now no land, no possessions, no freedom. He's captive, enslaved. He's on his way back as a servant to Mesopotamia. This is a dark and pitiful picture for Lot. I mean, here the narrative could have ended. So Lot made his bed and laid in it the rest of his days. 
And I told you this narrative was about an undeserving man being rescued. Lot is the undeserving man. He wanted Sodom and he got her. He wanted to live there and now he will die with her. Or will he? That's not the end. Not much of a rescue if he dies. Lot is the undeserving man, but he is rescued by an unexpected hero. And we should be thinking, I mean, these Mesopotamian kings, I mean, they've wiped out every kingdom around these five kings. I mean, they've defeated armies and soldiers and who in the world is going to go against them? Look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born of his house, 318 of them, and went and pursued as far as Dan. Someone who had been captured with Lot escapes the Mesopotamian kings. He runs to Abram as a kinsman of Lot, crying for help. Now, knowing all that we know at this point, you should be thinking, what is Abram going to do? Right? I mean, this was a man who just a few chapters ago was afraid of the Egyptians. And now he's going to go up against these four Mesopotamian kings that's just wiped everyone out? I mean, really? Abram? A lot of years have passed probably. Time has passed, no doubt. Abram has matured. He's grown in his faith. And verse 14 even gives us a picture that Abram's wealth really was significant. I mean, he has... It's very specific, 318 men at his disposal. And not just men, but trained men, the text says, that are ready for war. It's probably just a, a, a local, uh, this group of militia, basically, that Abram has trained up, probably for self-protection in the wilderness. But at this point in the text, these four Mesopotamian kingdoms, they're long past Mam Mamre, his, the residence of Abram. Like, they're on their way back home Abram gets word and he takes his little militia and goes after them. So this, speaking of movies, this reminds me of The Patriot with Mel Gibson, if you've ever seen that movie, right? So Mel Gibson's the retired soldier known for his grit and his uh, skill. His family member is taken off and he and his local militia friends go after them to rescue. This is, what, this is what's happening with Abram. He gets his men, they go north to Dan to cut off these kings. And they're clearly outnumbered. They're clearly outpowered. So they have to be more strategic. They have to be smarter. And verse 15 tells us what they did. It says he divided his forces against them by night. This is a, a sneak, surprise attack. He defeated them, chased them out of the land, rescued the people and took back all the possessions. I find it so interesting as quick as the text shows that the Mesopotamian kings just laid waste to everyone, so too does it show Abram went into town and he ran them out. It's, it's like, it's not even a challenge, it seems. And friends, this is just simply unexpected, is it not? I mean, four Mesopotamian powerhouses march down the eastern plains of Canaan, defeating every king along the way, 
defeating five rebellious kingdoms, making quick work of them, kidnapping women and children and all their possessions. possessions. They're headed back home with with less resistance than they've ever had before and more power than they ever had before. When a nomad named Abram gets 318 friends, chases after them, defeats them, and runs them out of town? No one saw that coming. Abram is the unexpected hero, rescuing the undeserving man. Seeing his kinsman, Lot, held in captivity and at great risk to himself and potentially great pain to himself, he puts his life on the line for his undeserving family member. Brothers and sisters, if you know your Bible, this should sound beautifully familiar to you. Is it not? I mean, there's a hero theme that can be traced all the way through the Bible. And some are very, uh, even eerily similar to this account. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 30, David is away from his city and an enemy attacks his city and, and takes the women and the children and the possessions. And David comes back and he pursues, in 1 Samuel 30, he pursues the enemy with how many men? 400 men. In Judges 7, God used Gideon to defeat the Midianites. And how many men did God give him? 300 men. I mean, you could go on and on when God used the unexpected, the seemingly weaker vessel, the outnumbered, the underrated, the overpowered, the least likely to achieve his salvific purposes. I hope it's becoming quite clear that this hero theme that's traced all the way through the Bible obviously culminates in the hero-saving work of Jesus Christ. Was he not an unexpected hero? I mean, people saw him and said, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? The son of a carpenter, the, the kid that we saw playing in the dirt for years? Who is this? At times, his own family members didn't believe. Listen, the prophet Isaiah said in 53, he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their eyes, he was despised, we esteemed him not. He didn't sound, look like a hero. Although it should have been, it was not obvious to the people that Jesus was the hero to come. Friends, if you must find yourself in this story, you and I are Lot. Undeserving of rescue and our sin, captive bound, enslaved, this is the wording that the Bible used, without hope, dead men walking, following the prince of the power of the air. In our sin, we rebelled against God, we snuggled up with the world, we chose our destiny and that's exactly who we are. And what did Jesus do for undeserving people like us? Just what Abram did. He came as, as we were being carried away into darkness, more so as we were loving the darkness. He came and he said, he's mine. And so is she. And so is he. I'll have them back. When Jesus died, he granted life. Because Jesus was punished, he, bought, he 
paid our debt, because Jesus bore our sin, he gave us his righteousness. Because Jesus stood in our place, we can stand before God with no condemnation. Do you believe that Jesus can rescue you? Do you want to be rescued? Or do you want to remain in your sin? Listen, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as this beautiful Savior, this beautiful Lord of your life, I'd like to invite you to do that today. Admit your unworthiness. Admit your sin. Give yourself in complete trust to Jesus Christ, who is the only hope for your salvation. Friends, this narrative, Genesis 14, is meant to point us to themes and patterns we see fulfilled in Christ. So Genesis is not just one book on its own. If you pull on these threads in Genesis, just thread by thread, like a shirt coming undone, if you pull on the threads, undeserving men, unexpected heroism, kinsman redemption, kingly reign, if you pull on those, the knot that you will get to at the end is the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, this was a real story that happened in Abram's life. But it's recorded here more than just for historical purposes. It's recorded here as a link, one link in a chain of God's overall plan to rescue his people. He's introducing us to themes and patterns that will be constant throughout the entire Bible. Jesus died in apparent defeat, right? On that, on that Friday on the hill, he died. And Satan walked off into the sunset thinking it was all over. But on the third day, when he rose, he stood as the only king left standing. An undeserving people rescued by an unexpected hero. Now, this narrative has one more scene to look at. I'm going to ask you to Hang with me. This is beautiful if you see it. It's one more theme in this last scene that we need to be introduced to. In verses 17 through 24 that finishes the passage, we're introduced to two other kings. Abram is on his way home. He has defeated the Mesopotamian kings. He's got Lot and all of his family back. He's on his way home and he meets two kings. One is king of Salem named Melchizedek, and the other is king of Sodom. Let's start with the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom comes to Abram, and he wants to do a business deal. He says, Abram, you give me the people, and I'll let you have all the possessions and the goods. Notice what Abram responds in verse 22 and 23. He says, I don't want one thread or one sandal strap of the possessions. Why? Because in essence, Abram says, I don't want anyone to be able to say they made me rich because I'm trusting that God's promise will be true. This is my time. I could take the promised land for myself, but that's not the promise. God said he would give it to me and I'll wait on him. King of Sodom, thanks, but no thanks. The other king he meets is more important, Melchizedek from Salem. Now, who is Melchizedek? Well, the text tells us that he is the king of Salem, but also in verse 18, we see that he's a priest of God Most High. You know, it would have been easy for Abram to be strutting back into town, right? And everybody's thinking, man, that's a bad man. 
But notice what King Melchizedek does. Verse 19 and 20. It shows him blessing Abram with bread and wine. He also blesses him with his words. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek knows exactly what Abram knows. It wasn't Abram's strength or his smarts that allowed him to defeat these kings. It was God who secured the victory. We see here that Abram is not the only one trusting in God. Melchizedek is too. And what does Abram do? He gives him a tenth of the possessions. He's contributing to the work of God here. This is one of the earliest examples of God's people giving financially to the work of God. In the Old Testament, it was given to the priesthood. In the New Testament, it's given to the church. This is why we take up a weekly offering at the end of our services. It's not because it's a charity, but it's because it's an act of worship. It's been like that from the very beginning, all the way from Genesis. Abram meets Melchizedek. He realizes that they're on the same mission and he partners with him in his work. Now, this Melchizedek figure is more important in the Bible than we might first realize. He may not seem all that important, but the Bible shows he actually is. So, go on a journey with me. Turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. As you're turning... When you come to texts in the Bible that you don't know what to do with, you don't understand, a good place to start is to see, does the rest of the Bible help in understanding this? Psalm 110, in this psalm, we see very clear king language. So this is King David writing. And notice what he says. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Look down at verse 5. David says to this future king he's writing, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Verse 6 says he will shatter chiefs or literally it says he will shatter the head. That reminds me of Genesis 3.15, crush the head, Right? In Psalm 10, we see very clear king rule type language of a future leader that's going to come over the nations, defeating kings with unhindered power. Some of this language even reminds us of the work that Abram did in Genesis 14. But more importantly, I think Psalm 10 is very clear language about the work of a priest. Look at Psalm 110.4. It even names Melchizedek of Genesis 14. David says of this future leader that's to come, you are a priest forever after the order of who? Melchizedek. Now that's interesting. All the way from Genesis 14 to Psalm 110. Here's the interesting part about Psalm 10. Get the connection. In this Psalm, David says there's a future leader, a Lord. He's going to come and he's going to combine two offices. He's going to rule like a king, shattering the heads of kingdoms. But he's also going to do the work of a priest, just like Melchizedek in Genesis 14. And you may think, well, well, that's an interesting connection, but I still don't get the point. 
There's one last step, and I promise it's the last step. Don't miss it. Keep going. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6. Buddy started us here earlier when he read the text. Hebrews 6, 19. Who is the leader that comes to be both king and priest? So in Hebrews, the author's writing about the certainties of God's promises. We can trust him just like the Old Testament saints. And in Hebrews 6, verse 19, he gives the reason why we can trust. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind a curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of who? Melchizedek. Hopefully this is starting to come together for you. The kingly, priestly role of Melchizedek that we see in Genesis 14 is promised to another future leader in Psalm 10 and then it's finally realized and fulfilled in the person of Jesus in Hebrews 6. And the whole chapter of Hebrews 7 explains how all this fits together so perfectly. But here's the bottom line point. Jesus is the better and final high priest after Melchizedek. He didn't have to offer sacrifice after sacrifice, day after day like Melchizedek does. He offered one sacrifice for all time because it was complete in and of himself. So even in Genesis 14, we have categories being established by God to rescue his people. Abram serves as a king defeating the rule of his enemies. Melchizedek serves as a priest working on behalf of God. In Genesis 14, we see two men fulfilling two offices and in the person of Jesus, they're combined into one. This is, this is glorious news for us. And I, I, hope that, I hope that you can see the glory of this passage that's so much more beyond be brave like Abram. Be kind like Melchizedek. Be generous like Abram. Church family, see the work of Jesus on your behalf. Look at the structures that are being built in place that Jesus is the cornerstone of, that he is the unexpected hero rescuing undeserving people, that he's the king ruling over all, that he's the high priest interceding for you every day. That's the glory of Genesis 14. And the only questions that I have to end with is do you see yourself as the captive in sin needing rescue? Do you see yourself as an undeserving person of God's grace? Is Jesus your high, king, high priest interceding on your behalf? Is Jesus the king ruling over your life? See, this is why Genesis was written to tell the story of the beginning of the story of an unexpected hero who comes to rescue an undeserving people. Let's pray. Oh God, these are, these are weighty things. Um, but I give you praise, Father, for the realities that we see being put in place in the book of Genesis. I'm thankful, God, that the storyline of Scripture doesn't end at Genesis, that it serves as an introduction. I pray for people here this morning that 
they would be able to see clearly the, the kingly role of Jesus, that he sits high on his throne, that he's, he's ruling over everyone and everything, that nothing can stand in his way, nothing thwarts his plans. And as high and lifted up as he is, I pray that we would get a sense of his priestly work, that when we fall into darkness and we fall into sin, there stands one better interceding on our behalf, saying, I paid for that sin and for that sin and for that sin and it's done because I'm king and I can say it's done. Thank you for rescuing an undeserving people like us. Calls us to respond in worship in light of that. In Christ's name, amen.